I really wanted to dig into the complexity of these hyper close kinds of friendships. And it felt like I would not do justice to them if all I was doing was, you know, showing all the shiny parts and not showing the ways that these friendships can also have difficult edges to them or the way people misinterpret them and the hardships that come with having an unrecognized friendship. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Today's episode takes me back to 2017, to a polarizing HBO show called Girls. Yes, we are going to very briefly detour into Lena Dunham territory. I can't really tell you what all happens in the sixth and final season of Girls, but I do remember sitting down and watching the finale, and for a brief moment, loving what I was seeing on screen. Spoiler alert, question mark. By this point, Lena Dunham's character, Hannah, has a newborn baby. She has decided to raise it on her own. Of course, she is having a lot of trouble figuring out how to make that work, and so... Her aimless, selfish best friend, Marnie, seems to have turned over a new leaf and is offering to co-parent with Hannah. You think you have a lot of friends, right? Yeah. Who's here? Who's here? I'm here. I win. I'm your best friend. I'm the best at being your friend. I love you the most. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, okay. Fuck you. And it made my little heart sing because it's a storyline that we just don't really ever see of two friends coming together to decide to co-parent a child, a non-sexual but romantic in its own way kind of friendship. But I was so sad by the end of the episode because we knew that this co-parenting fantasy was only that, a fantasy. That it wasn't actually going to happen. That these two friends were likely going to part ways and find their own lives probably quite separate from each other. Once they hit their mid-30s, early 40s, who knows if Hannah and Marnie are going to be all that closely in touch. And in some ways, I think that today's episode is like the alternate ending to Girls that I wanted. The alternate ending where it would not have been so strange at all for Marnie to stick around and for her and Hannah to raise Grover, the child's name. Sorry, I had a big problem with that as well. But they would have raised Grover together and everyone would have lived happily ever after. And that is also the kind of happily ever after that today's guest, Raina Cohen, writes about in her new book, The Other Significant Others. One of my observations from the beginning of the book is like, 
going to weddings and people refer to their spouse-to-be as their best friend, even as they have their maid of honor or groomsman or whomever standing there. And not only is the person who you marry going to be the most important person in your life, but also that they're going to become your best friend as well. Raina Cohen is an audio and print journalist, and one of the main topics that she focuses on is social connection, and specifically today, deep friendships. The kinds of friendships that don't even have to wait for our Golden Girls era to manifest. Raina's new book is based on a 2020 piece for The Atlantic that she wrote titled, What If Friendship, Not Marriage, Was at the Center of Life? And this kind of deep friendship is a topic that we've revisited a number of times now on Unladylike. But what stood out to me so much in The Other Significant Others is how comprehensively Raina really examines this dynamic. It's not just focused on Marnie's and Hannah's female friendships. It's not just straight girls who are deciding to deprioritize men. It's far more inclusive in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender dynamics, in terms of even religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. And throughout the book, she profiles these various friendships that also are between people of various ages and at different life stages to look at how these truly committed till death do us part kind of adult friendships take shape and also make a lot of people uncomfortable. Your new book is The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. What were the kinds of questions that you set out to answer? The way that a lot of work on this is presented is like, it's about female friendship or the way that I've actually had people describe my book without totally knowing what it is about is like, it's like the power of friendship or the power of female friendship, even though it's not actually about female friendship. But, you know, I I think kind of from the beginning, I was really interested in why is it that we don't know that it's possible to have a friendship that can be a central relationship in life rather than a peripheral one? And what changes if we realize that that's possible? Like, how does that alter our thinking about what our relationship should look like, what our definition of friendship is, how we determine who family is, and, you know, not just in our individual lives, but on a societal level and even in the law? I want to know about your friendship, your central friendship with M that you write about in The Other Significant Others. You and M are sort of an anchor in the book. Well, you know, I had moved to a new city. This was, uh, what year is it now? Like seven years ago. And I was starting to build a new life in a new city, new job, all of that. And then about a half a year in, I met M at a mutual friend's birthday party. She and I figured out that we lived a five-minute walk from each other, which just made it possible to see each other all the time. And, you know, anybody who's ever been at summer camp or, like, been in a college dorm or any of these other kind of settings where you have a lot of time and unplanned run-ins that you can have with people – 
anyone who's had those sorts of experiences knows that you can become close so much faster than I think the way things tend to proceed in adulthood, which is like maybe you see somebody once a week if you're lucky. So we became really enmeshed in each other's lives in small ways. Like I would stop at her house on the way to the Metro in the morning and we'd just like have oatmeal for breakfast. We would host parties together. We, you know, had spent time at each other's offices before we knew each other's families. And I just felt like it was a closer friendship than anything that I'd experienced before that really even went beyond what best friend was because it felt like we were moving through life together in a way that felt relatively familiar because I was also in a romantic relationship at that point with the person who's now my husband. And it just didn't feel that fundamentally different from the relationship I had with him. It just really didn't have the sex component. How did it feel like a friendship you'd never experienced before? Like, what were the kinds of qualities that made it so almost magical sounding? I really felt like I was falling in love with her in the way that I felt like I had fallen in love with my husband. You know, the kind of infatuation, excitement, giddiness, all of that. Like, I, like I just was self-conscious that I was talking about her all the time and tried to, like, be careful <laughs> not to attribute everything to her that she said and just be like, my friend told me so-and-so um, because I was afraid of coming across as obsessive. Like, <laughs> it sounds much more like what we would think about as, as a romantic relationship or the, the feelings that a romantic connection can elicit. And I had forms of that kind of affection with friends before, but this was, you know, again, it was like adding on to spending so much time together and operating in certain ways like a unit. I still had my romantic partner. We had our own groups of friends. We weren't like totally enmeshed, but people didn't often know to like invite us together or knew that we were just as close as we were. And I don't know that people necessarily see that with friends, at least past a certain age. Yeah. Didn't a friend of yours, another friend of yours suggest that maybe y'all were actually in sort of like a, a polyamorous relationship? Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine who has experience with polyamory had suggested that when he had asked me, like, what is the difference between your romantic relationship and this friendship. And I was like kind of unsure what to say. And then I was like, I guess I have sex with like my romantic partner, but not with them. Like there's like those feelings and desires aren't there. And he was like, yeah, it just sounds like you have like two partners. And one of them is a, it's a platonic <laughs> version of a partnership. I was pretty unfamiliar with polyamory at the time, but the term partner did kind of come through for M and, and I when we were trying to figure out like, what do we call our friendship? But yes, that was something that my friend suggested because it did really seem like at the time that I had these two partners. When did sex become this dividing line between friendship and assuming, well, there must there must be something more than friendship? I think that assumption is coming from a couple of different places. One is we have this assumption now that was not true centuries ago that love and lust always have to go together. Like if you love someone, that means that you're also sexually attracted to them. So if you look at the letters that same sex friends exchanged in the 1800s or up until about the turn of the 20th century, they read like love letters, like romantic love letters. And, you know, I'll say as a side note, like we don't know in most cases what happened physically with some of these people, but I think that the kind of historical reading of this for the most part is that 
while some of them probably were sexual relationships, I think it makes sense to operate from a place of like the conception of friendship was quite different and the conception of sex was different. There were not the categories we now know of heterosexuality and homosexuality and the stigma attached to homosexuality that made it so that any kind of same-sex affection would then make someone suspicious. Some of this sort of dates back to the turn of the 20th century when we have um, these ideas around sexuality that didn't exist in the same way before. I do think today there's this sometimes like other more generous impulse where people want to correct for the straightwashing in the past or the euphemisms that have long been around where a same-sex romantic couple might be called good friends when in fact they were romantic partners. And I was talking to somebody who um, attended a women's college and said that it was so queer friendly, which was great for them, but it also meant that it was hard for people to really believe that two women were actually friends, that um, they were always just assumed to be romantic partners. So I think that that's, that sometimes there's a well-meaning place where people see some form of intimacy and assume that there must be a romantic relationship even when it is possible to have such strong feelings and commitment within a friendship. Well, and do you think that the term friends with benefits also muddies the waters in kind of the inverse way as well? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking with your question, like the exception, of course, here is something like friends with benefits, because there is this term that carves out a space where people can be first and foremost friends, but have the sexual component. And in like the definition of the kinds of friendships that I'm writing about, they're like romantic partnerships without the sex piece. But friendship is flexible. And maybe the bigger lesson here is that categories we think of as very distinct can actually blur together. And there can be these the rules that maybe are mostly true, but not always true. And it's worth noting when everything doesn't sort of fit into neat boxes and what we can learn from that. Why is it that for these relationships that have existed and been exalted, like in literature, in history, but like you said, they are still in so many ways socially invisible, why is it? I think some of this goes back to the expectations of marriage and how those have, I think, crowded out space for relationships like friendship. And then also the history where same-sex intimacy really became suspect and sexualized. You know, I see it all the time that it is so hard for people to understand what commitment to a friend could look like because there isn't a sexual component to it. In fact, one of the stories that I tell in the book is of these two men who are in their 30s, both straight, and the mother of one of them could not wrap her head around the fact that the friendship was not a romantic relationship. And then eventually she stopped asking about that, whether it was romantic, but then would ask her son about, like, are you dating? And he got to a point where he was like, so, you know, why why are you asking me so much about dating? Why is it so important to you? And she just said that, like, she wanted him to be happy and that emotional happiness would come from a romantic relationship. And she wanted him to have somebody to go to, be vulnerable with, that sort of thing. And he was like, I have that in a friend. And her response was like, I just don't understand how you can have a partnership with someone that you're not romantic with. So, I, I I think like people have not necessarily spent time thinking about their definitions of or criteria for what commitment looks like. And that because romantic relationships are so often the relationship that people commit to, they just see that as maybe the only kind of relationship that it's possible to feel that kind of closeness in or be that devoted to. So I think we're just maybe at the beginning of people 
asking questions, questioning their assumptions about, you know, what are the kinds of relationships that can make us feel full and make us feel grounded, make us feel seen, and that we just have moved through the world not really asking that and we can change it. Do you think that cultural mistrust or skepticism in friendship commitment for the long haul has to do with the fact that the state is basically not involved in our friendship, that it is not a legally recognized relationship. It certainly doesn't help. One of the core arguments that I'm making in the book is that we undermine romantic relationships by expecting too much of them. And we also weaken friendships by expecting too little of them. Like, I think we fail to realize the full potential of friendships by not seeing that they can be the kinds of relationships that help us through sickness and old age. And in fact, when I, you know, I was chatting with some doctors who deal with a lot of uh, older patients and they said often by the end of life, it's a friend who's by the person's bedside. So I think our images are, are a bit out of step with reality and if we were willing to invest more in friendship, we might see the returns on it. And on the legal piece, yeah, certainly. Like I have talked to people who have had trouble getting into the hospital because they're not legally related to their friend. So that doesn't help if you want to be somebody's caregiver. And people find workarounds like getting medical and legal power of attorney rights. But one of the things that marriage gives is not just the long list of rights uh, and benefits, but also a very widely recognized status. And there isn't a status that the law recognizes and it makes it harder for people to really show up in full ways. So I think all of these, the expectations feed the law and the law feeds the expectations and we need to be able to be adjusting things on both fronts. This is reminding me of one of the friendships that you profile of the first platonic co-parents who were recognized in Canada. Yeah. So yes, I write about these two women who I think are like really remarkable. So one of them, Natasha, decided to have a child on her own when she was 36. She was not partnered and didn't want to forego the possibility of having children by waiting for a spouse <laughs> indefinitely. And then her friend Linda found out about her pregnancy and wanted to help her through the process of pregnancy and birth and when the child was born under pretty distressing conditions, it was Linda who was there in the operating room for the emergency C-section and was the first person to hold the boy, whose name is Alan. Like, she's <laughs> totally obsessed with him from the beginning and was, like, taking care of him from day one. It took a long time for both her and for Natasha to realize that, like, Linda was really co-parenting. And Linda talked to Natasha about wanting to have legal rights because she was a legal stranger to this boy who she really was treating as her son. And there was no reason that doctors had to listen to her as a legal stranger. Even though they're in Canada and have universal health care, there are still supplemental health care plans and a pension and so on that he would not have access to if Linda was not legally related to him. And this was especially important on the healthcare front and on the finances because he has complex disabilities, which make his care quite expensive and will probably get more expensive over time. So the more resources, really, the better, in addition to just like stabilizing a family where there's a lot of love in it. So they, Linda was able to get this legal recognition. She didn't actually adopt Elon because that would have been 
quite complicated. They probably would Mm. have had to mount a Supreme Court challenge there because there are these sort of step-parent adoption ways of getting around this, but that requires marriage. And so the constitutional challenge would have been like, this child is being disadvantaged because of his legal status. But in any case, they were like, this is going to take too long. It's going to be expensive. We can't afford that. There is this other workaround that has the same rights called the legal declaration of parentage. So they ended up getting that and had to get a bunch of affidavits and and show that it was in the best interest of the child for Linda to be declared his parent, which it very clearly was. But I just point out the adoption part because that speaks to the way that you know, there could be changes in the law, not just in Canada, but in in the U.S., to make it easier for people who aren't in married relationships, who is functioning as a parent and deserves to be recognized as one in the law. It seems like, though, at least in the U.S., the the political pundit hand-wringing is a lot more focused on, oh my God, how can we really get more people on board with compulsory coupledom and really lock down more marriages? Yes, I think there has been a lot of focus on marriage and trying to encourage people toward marriage, and there's been a revival of it just in the last few months. But what I saw again and again interviewing people is that life takes people by surprise, and in good ways and in hard ways. And this singular model of a ostensibly lifelong monogamous romantic relationship, or marriage in particular, simply does not fit the many ways that people's lives unfold. There's, like, we were just talking about Natasha and Linda. Like, Natasha wanted to have a child, and she was able to have a child on her own. But I guess would it have been a better world if she, because she wasn't married, was not able to have a child? If people said no, or if Linda had never come into her life, and that she would be handling the care for her child on her own when she could have had this additional loving person? I write about these women who are in their 80s, who I think are some of the best examples of how life takes you by surprise. Like one of these women got married very young, had two children, had a house in the suburbs, but her husband was like not a great guy and she ended up leaving him, which was quite remarkable to do in the, I think this was in the early 70s. And she had to make a new life for herself and she ended up like having this friend to play that role. I talked to all sorts of people who have stories like these where maybe they wanted this kind of, route that is conventional and that they're told will be fulfilling, but it either doesn't work out or it only works out for a portion of their lives. Not to mention that we want these relationships like deep friendships, even when people are married, because it's not going to do much good for the marriage to have the marriage be the be all and end all. Earlier in our conversation, I asked about your beyond best friendship with M. And over the course of the book, your friendship evolves. Listeners, read The Other Significant Others for more on that. But how did reporting all of this, how did it reframe or maybe help explain that friendship and especially what you were feeling early on in terms of like, this is something that I don't really have language for, but it is kind of everything to me. Doing the reporting was enormously validating. I think going back to some of the deep history were indications to me that there were different 
ways to really value friendships in forms that I craved. So like you can go back to the eighth century in the Byzantine empire where men would go into a church and one of their hands would be put on top of the other, on top of the gospels, and a priest would say a blessing over them and they would be declared brothers for life and maybe even into the afterlife. And there would be people there to celebrate. One of the things that I think my friend and I were interested in was public acknowledgement that our friendship mattered. And looking to the past showed me that there were ways that friendship was a more public relationship and a one that was commemorated and not just something that two people privately had together. And then I think the emotional experience of the friendship really, I I got a lot of clarity on by doing the reporting. One particular area of this came from psychology research that really shows that it is possible to have passionate, infatuated feelings within a non-sexual relationship, in a friendship. I talked to this woman who's a psychologist named Lisa Diamond, and she researched what she calls passionate friendships that operate in this in-between world where there's not sexual longing in them, but also it's much more intense than a typical friendship and that they're, they have kind of a lot of the sort of features that people expect of romantic relationships. And a lot of the people she interviewed felt like they were totally alone, uh, that this was a, a thing that was very meaningful to them, but nobody else had. And there's a way that, that being the only one can make something feel special, but it can also make you feel isolated. And I really felt connected to the many people like today and across time who have felt so ardently in their own friendships. So how do you also kind of reconcile the reality of what's been called a friendship recession, a loneliness epidemic? Those sorts of uh kind of declarations and statistics around the leanness and around the declining number of people who have close friends. They're, they're grim, but I am actually encouraged that there is this recognition that there are needs that a lot of people have that are not being met. And where friendship is starting to be treated as a really essential relationship and not one that is dispensable and has to be on the outskirts of life. So in some ways, these things are not that hard to reconcile. They're a kind of signal or a clarion call that that it's time to do something different about friendship and that it is wise for us to look at the stories of people who are doing something differently in their friendships and use them as a kind of like beacon or model for us to see, do we want that in our own lives? I think about this moment that happened several years ago where I was sitting on a couch with two of my friends and I had asked if either of them wanted more physical affection in their friendships. And they both said yes. And I asked them, would you be willing to initiate more physical affection in your friendships? And they both said no. So I think that there's a version of that for a lot of people where they want more closeness, but they wouldn't be willing to ask for it because of rejection. But I think if we recognize that on a societal level, that this there are cravings for closeness that a lot of people have, that it makes it a little bit easier to reach out and to maybe start conversations about playing a larger role in our friends' lives or making new friends that doesn't leave us with shame or feelings of rejection. Also, that just reminded me too of in film, like something that I was thinking about uh, in the lead up to our conversation in terms of the even limited range of movies about female friendship specifically, the go-to reference is Thelma and Louise. 
Yeah, it is, is kind of a bleak comparison to say that you guys are like Thelma and Louise. It's like, we're going to drive off a cliff together? <laughs> oh, Great. <no. laughs> um, yeah, I, I do think at least women have more examples, especially recently. TV and to some extent film is more reflective of what our lives look like because in, at least in TV you have the Golden Girls going way back, but also Grace and Frankie, Insecure, Broad City. I mean, these are all examples of women, which I think is one of the issues. There at least is scrubs for men, but there are at least some depictions of these friendships. But I I don't think that it is saturated all parts of our popular culture to have rich stories that are not built around a romantic plot. I mean, I was just talking to somebody who works in LA and was in a writer's room where apparently, I don't know, some other writer was saying that they needed to cut a character unless she was going to end up in a romantic relationship with some other character. And the person I was talking to was like, no, there can be interesting things about her other than the fact that she ends up in a romantic relationship. That conversation is happening in the year of our Lord, 2024. Like we still have <laughs> room to go to see friendship as having a plot that is worth following and being as emotionally invigorating and complex as romantic relationships, which not everybody has this kind of friendship, but I, I think a lot of people have had some experience at some point in their lives, even if it's in, in back in childhood when these sorts of friendships were more condoned. And we really could have that reflected back at us on the screen and the stage and in our headphones. And speaking of headphones, guess what, on ladies? Raina's friends actually wrote and produced a whole new song all about these other significant others. It's called Dear Friend. I'm going to play it for you now. And Raina's going to explain why, <laughs> why this song has come to be. My world feels easy when I'm with you. My place of refuge. You're my person, you're my rock. The one I call when life gets hard. A part of my soul, a piece of my heart. Dear friend. We don't have enough songs, I think, about friendship. Like, there's, I found it very poignant learning that the cultural critic, Kwashu, in his experience of dealing with his best friend being killed, had a hard time finding music about particularly the heartbreak with friendship, but he was listening to love songs. He eventually did find some songs in like hip hop and rap. But if you think about the kind of like, how many songs we have about falling in romantic love and falling out of romantic love and heartache and how few we have about friendship, it feels totally out of proportion with I think the experience of a lot of people of how thrilling and also painful like friendships can be. So I just really love that there's gonna be one more song that's added to this too small canon or collection of songs about friendship. <laughs> and ladies, do y'all have other significant others? I know I do. And I'm wondering if now I need to let them know that they're my other significant others. I mean, I, I feel like I have expressed as much, but maybe this calls for some kind of formal announcement sent through the mail. I don't know. What do you think? 
Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me all of the letters. You can also email me voice memos because I love to hear your voice. Raina's book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center, is on sale everywhere today. Happy Pub Day, Raina. You can follow Raina on Instagram and Twitter at Raina Cohen or visit her website, RainaCohen.com. If you would like to become officially more than friends to Unladylike, then come on in to the Unladies Room. Join the Patreon. Her Fault Divorce, the latest episode. Ooh, that one has been proving popular. And coming up this weekend in the Unladies Room is my uncut interview from way back in 2018 with cave diver Jill Heinerth. I love this interview with Jill so much because A, cave diving is something I can't even conceive of doing, y'all. Like I've got a fear of heights, but also I have like a reverse fear of heights going down that deep. I don't I don't know if I could do it. So there's just the awe factor, but also the way that Jill talks about the mental aspect and the fact that you really are forcing mind and body to do something that all of our instincts say not to do is so, so, so fascinating. Patreon.com slash Unladylike Media or search Unladylike Media in the Patreon app to join. Or if you want to hang out for free, just follow Unladylike on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Unladylike Media. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our engineer is Amita Ganatra. Music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? I think one thing that is probably, uh, if not unladylike, then pretty unconventional is that my husband and I live in a house with two of our friends and their two young children, which is not the way lots of people decide to live their lives and that there's a particular kind of way that you're expected to live with your spouse and be an adult. <laughs>